All right. So we are in our second week of this, this study that we started last week called How to Study the Bible. This is, Drew and I took a class in college called Principles of Interpretation, which is another fancy name for it is hermeneutics. And so we took, it's a semester long class that we are kind of combining into an eight week crash course this summer. So what this will do, and I touched on this last week, but what this will do is just give you some tools and some principles and, and kind of a mindset to when you sit down to read the Bible, you, you can feel like, okay, I think I know what to do with this thing. Because, because there's, this thing was written anywhere from 3,500 years ago to 2,000 years ago. There's written on a different, across the, country, you know, across the world in different languages. It's been translated. There's cultural differences. There's, there's language differences. There's analogy differences. There's things that, w- that do not come natural to us because we didn't grow up in that area in that language. So there's a lot, there's some work that has to be done in terms of interpreting any ancient document. You've got to do some work to interpret. So what we said last week was, and I'm going to quiz you. Actually, there is a quiz. Sorry. Um, that's fine. Uh, there's a quiz. I'm going to quiz you on like what, some questions. You'll see, you see them there. But last week we, we said that the Bible is two things. It is God's word, and therefore um, it is divine. It has a spiritual element. And so we are, we are coming to the word to hear from him, right? So we're God's revelation to us. So we're hearing from God, which is different than any other book. It's also a historical book, which means it's written by people in a certain context, in a certain culture, in a certain time. And, and, and there's some things that we can do to work at understanding that time and that culture and that place. So, so it's those two things. Other than that, what is the goal of interpretation? What did we say last week, those who are here? We are, we are seeking what? Authors intended meeting. I knew you could do it. Authors intended meeting. Okay? What we're, we're not trying to figure out what is this Bible saying to me. We're saying the Bible wasn't written to me. The Bible was written by somebody to somebody. And we want to understand what the author intended. When the author wrote to the audience they wrote to, we want to understand what they were writing and why. That's our goal of interpretation. What is the goal of studying the Bible? There's lots of ways you could say this. I'll take a very variety of answers. Know God better. To know God better. That's how I, I put it, to know and love God more. You could say to grow in a relationship with Him. You could say to grow in connection with Him, to grow in intimacy with Him. To, to, yeah, so there's a lot of ways you can answer that. But that's the goal of what we're trying to do. We're not trying to, I said last week, we come to this as worshipers, not students. Now, there is a student aspect to it, and that's the, that's the historical part. That's the, the human element to this, this book written by real people is there's some principles, there's some tools, there's some science behind, I think, discovering what the author intended. But, and there, so there is a study aspect to it, but we come to it as worshipers. Um, and then we, we also talked about these three, these three terms, meaning, implication, and significance. What do, what do I mean by meaning? Who determines the meaning of the text? The author. The author determines the meaning, and that author could be that author could be Paul, who wrote to the church in Corinth, and ultimately that author we believe is God, who orchestrated 
these things. So, right? So, author's intended meaning. What did, what did Paul mean? And then ultimately, what is God? Why is God, why did God put it there? What is he intending? Okay, so that's the meaning. What are the implications? Who sets a tone for the implications? Also the author. So implications can be things that the author may not be aware of, but fit in the, the intent of the text. And an example I used last week was, Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, right? So, but Paul didn't know, maybe he didn't know about meth. But you think he'd be, he'd be like, no, meth is fine. Meth is totally cool. Uh, but, but just wine, don't do that, you know? No, there is a, he says, which leads to debauchery. Debauchery, this, this being out of control, right? He says, instead, be controlled by the Spirit. So, so, so any, any sort of substance that would lead somebody out of control would fit into the implications of what Paul's saying. That's what we mean by implications. And then significance. Who, where, where is the significance determined? By who? The reader. You and me. So, again, we don't determine the meaning. We don't really set up the implications. We, we study, we understand, we see the trajectory the author's going. But then, but then when it comes to how God uses those, that in our life, how do we apply it? Do, you know, man, I, I really need to apologize to my roommate for blank. Well, the Bible didn't say, hey, go apologize to your roommate. But you read that and you go, that's what the Lord, I think, is showing me. So that's implications. All right, so now we're going to we, we talked about observation, observation, interpretation, application. T- today we're going to spend the whole time just talking about observation, which is step one. When you sit down to study a text, we're, we're the, 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 this is called how to study the Bible. So if you sit down to study a, a book of the Bible or a passage of the Bible, the first step is observation, and it's the one that we skip. It's, it's the easiest one to skip for a lot of reasons. So we're going to start with picking a good translation. So it, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. Uh, it's on the screen, which is super small. It's on, your, it's on your notes there for you young eyes, and you can read that. Um, but so when here's what you need to know about translations. So I have the CSB, okay, the Christian Standard Bible. Yeah, that's what it is. Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Uh, who else has another translation? What's, what, what, what is one? NIV. NIV, which is what? New International. Yep. ESV. Which is? Yep. Anybody have another one? <laughs> KJV. KJV, which is? Yep. Okay, so there's NASB, there's RSV, there's ASV, there's, there's all kinds. So there's a whole bunch of them right there. So when, when, when the translators, okay, which are scholars... Scholars sit down, and I got, to, I got to take a class from a guy who was the, the general editor for the Old Testament in the NLT, which is the New Living Translation. And I got to hear him describe the process in which they sit down to, um, to translate texts. Okay? So they have a general editor, then they have one, one specific general editor over each book, and then they have a team of scholars under, under each general editor. It, I mean, it's... It's truly impressive. It's a, it's a grueling process. It takes years and years for them to, to translate. So when these scholars sit down and they, 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 they come to and they say, you know what, we want to we create another, a new translation. And, and this time we want to, 
because there's nothing else on the market that's, that's, that, that does a good job of making it more readable. You know, we have the King, King James Version, which is probably the least readable one because we don't speak that language anymore, right? So if, if you grew up in a home where the King James was read and you were young, you're like, what the heck does this mean? I don't know. Most, most people do. Some people see it as like angelic language, right? Oh, it's, it's biblical language. That's what it is. Well, no, it's really just translated from the 1500s, and that's what they spoke, and that's why, it's, that's why they bought a lot of duffs and, and, and whatever, right? So it's the least readable now. Um, and so when, when, when translators sit down and they're trying to figure out what do we want to do, they, they come up with a translation philosophy or theory, and, and they're balancing two things, accuracy and readability or clarity, right? And so another way, another way of seeing that is here on the page you see word for word or thought for thought. So word for word would be, they look at each Greek word or each Hebrew word or each Aramaic word, and they are trying to, they're going to, determine based on how that word is used, based on how it's used in the Bible, based on how it's used in history, they're going to figure out what does that word mean. And, and you, may, you may read, uh, in fact, I'm going to encourage it, different translations of the same verse, and you'll see a, the scholars use different, wor- different English words to translate the same Greek and Hebrew word. Why? It's because it's rich. It's because they have one word and we have several words to to describe and it can mean a lot of things right so so the scholars are 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 trying to figure out um, do we want this to be accurate word for word or do we want this to be readable and we're going to go thought for thought and so that's where the spectrum comes in so all those on the left side are going to be a little more are going to be more readable or sorry are going to be more accurate maybe to the original language um, but maybe choppy to read. So our, our church used to, we switched from the NLT, which is really readable. If you see NLT is on the right side, to the ESV, which is all the way on the left side. Uh, we did that, I don't know what year it was, several, several years ago, before we switched back to the, to the CSB. Um, and, and by that, I mean like in our, in our Sunday, morning, <coughs> Sunday morning, the one we read from. So, and, and what everyone noticed was, wow, the ESV is like choppy. It just, it doesn't seem to flow very well. And that's because in the original, the way it was written, it didn't flow very well. It, it was, it was, that's how, that's how it came. So, so the NLT says, yeah, we're going to smooth that out. And we're going to not do word for word, we're going to do thought for thought. So that's, that's a little bit of translation theory um, and, and the different versions that you have. Picking a good one. The ones that I go to, if, I, if I'm going to study a text, I'll read four or five different translations. Um, I'll read NASB, I'll read ESV, I'll read CSB, NIV, and NLT, and then sometimes for fun, the message. Um, so, just because I, I think it's creative and good. Anyway, so, next, next point there is read multiple translations. Um, like I said, teams of scholars have, have, have translated these, these translations. They're all, they're all good. Um, and what it does, when you, if you're going to study a text to read multiple ones, you're going to get, like I said, a, a, a richer description of what's happening in those, 
in that in those verses in those words. Okay, so another yeah, yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. The the guy that I sat under, his name is um, Trimper Longman the Third. But anyway, he he described how they would sit around and sometimes a word like pomegranate would be the word, but that's not what they meant. They didn't mean the fruit. They meant pomegranate was was an analogy for something else. So the the scholars would have to go. Do we want to translate it pomegranate or, or do we want to translate it? The metaphor. Do we want to just explain the metaphor? And so that that becomes a really tricky thing sometimes when they're trying to figure out. So that's why those footnotes can be really helpful to go. Okay, it's this word, but it but it literally is pomegranate. Well, that's interesting. I wonder why. Well, that can help in in maybe understanding something. So footnotes can be really really cool. Um, next point, and this is important, and this is this is something we're going to practice here in just a second. Is don't be careless when you read. If you're going to study a text and you're going to want to understand it, um, try to read it as if you're reading it for the first time. Try to notice everything in it. And so you're going, to get an op- you're going to get a chance to practice that here in a second. Ask yourself, what does the text assume that I should know from the context? And we'll talk about literary and historical context in the coming weeks. So this is where you wrestle with, the, with what the text says. That's the, that's the blanket there at the bottom. This is where you wrestle with what the text says. Ask the text um, the questions that come to mind. You'll learn that, that some of them will be helpful and some are not. Because good observation is an art, not a science. It's something you'll, you grow in. You grow to learn how to ask better questions. All right, so we're going we're gonna to practice. On your, the very the back, the last page has John 4. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to set a timer for five minutes. The first two minutes, I just want you to read that. Okay, you're, to yourself. Read it for, for two minutes, as many times as you can, but, but read it intentionally. And then the last three minutes, you're going to get together with two or three people around you, and you're going to come up with at least five questions to ask the text. Five questions to ask the text or observations that you make. Ready? Go. Oh, two minutes is up. So circle up or get together with a few people and come up with at least five questions or five observations that would be helpful. Okay. Three minutes is up. Circle back. All right, so I want to hear some of the questions. Just fire them away. Yes. Yep, good question. Okay, that's another one. Yeah. Uh, why don't Jews and Samaritans associate? Great question. Great question. Yes? Why did they mention it being nude? Being nude. Great question. Yes? Why does Samaria have two names? Samaria called Shachar. That's why 
sounds. Oh, it's a sound. Yeah. Well, it's a question. It is a question. <laughs> you get half a credit. <laughs> yes. Uh, is there any significance to his tone? Like, give me a drink sounds to me. Okay. Significance to the tone? Yes. Okay, yes, great questions. Jacob's well would be interesting to know. Yeah? If Jesus was thirsty, why did he wait by the well until someone else drank water? Okay, yep. Why did Jesus wait for her to come by to get water? Yeah? Go ahead, yep. Was Jesus aware that the Samaritan woman was going to be gone there? Was he, yeah, did he know? Did he know before? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Why, yeah. Why does it describe that detail? Yeah. So, when when authors today are telling a story uh, or or accounting a story, there can be such description and such detail. So we're we're kind of used to stories that are really detailed, right? You, you know, d- describing like a, a sun-kissed moonlight blah 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 right so like we we use this kind of language the literature back then didn't didn't describe things didn't tell narratives in the same way so which which is which means that this is a narrative right so um which means that okay these details are in there for for a reason and some we can find out we can find out about jacob's well we can read the old testament story about it we can find out about the history of Samaria and the Jews and why they don't get along. We can, we can read this history about it. We probably can't find out if Jesus... We don't know if Jesus knew that she specifically was going to be there before. We, that's a good question. You'll, you'll realize, yeah, I guess it's worth asking. It's worth asking all the questions. It's worth kind of not assuming anything. I mean, even like things like, what is it like to be a woman in the first century? What is a Pharisee? What is, what is baptized? Right? So those are basic, simple questions that y- you can f- assume you know, but it might lead to understanding a little more about the text. All right? Very good. So I'm gonna, we're going to give, we're going to come back to the John 4 here in a second. Um, but first, I want to walk through 10 things to look for, and then, then we're going to go back to John 4 and practice quickly. And then uh, we'll get to practice, hopefully, on another text. So, first thing to look for is genre. Genre, or the various literary forms. We're going to spend weeks five through eight talking about different genres. But there's a list of them right there. Narrative, poetry, uh, wisdom, epistle, prophecy, apocalyptic, which is Revelation, and parables, laws. Those are different types of literary forms in the Bible. And, and so each one has kind of a unique way in which, which to read it. it the, when you understand the genre, it, it kind of influences the way you would read the text, would, would read it. So that's, that's important to, that's number one. What genre is this? Okay, next one is unknown and important words. And we are going to turn to a lot of scripture. So... Either in your app, yeah, your Bible app on your phone, or open your Bible um, to look up Romans three, twenty-one through twenty-six, and I'm going to read it, and you're going to 
tell me if there are any unknown or important words being used in this text. 1 through 26. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came in Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atoning sacrifice in His blood received through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because, at, at his, because in His restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Him to demonstrate um, His righteousness at the present time so that, the, so that He would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Any unknown or important words there? Okay. Propitiation. That's actually a very important word. Um, I think there's only a couple translations that translate it that, as that way, and I think it's probably the best translation of that word. Here it is atoning sacrifice or sacri- sacrificial, sacrifice of atonement. or I, I, don't, I can't remember what the NIV says, but... This one is going to hit lists. And I'm just going to read the first six verses. Um, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in, in, in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy, blameless, and loved before Him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He lavished on us in the Beloved. So if, if I were to ask the question, what has God done? What has God done for us? There's a list there. Did you pick up on the things that God, it says that God has done for us? What's, what's one of them? He blessed us. He, he chose us. He adopted us. Predestined us. You Calvinists are shaking or loving that. Uh, lavished on us, right? So that's where if, you, if you're paying attention, you can go, wow, there's a list there. That's a really cool list. In fact, it, it goes on, I would encourage you, 3 through 14, there's a whole bunch. So Rome, uh, Revelation 4 has the word throne. I think it's like Revelation 4 has 11-ish verses maybe. can't remember. Somewhere around there. And the word throne is mentioned 13 times. Interesting. So you, it's repeated 13 times. So you go, okay, wait. That word is mentioned a bunch of times. Why? What does that word mean? How is that word used? If you looked into it, you would realize that word represents authority. So there's, there's, there's a picture of authority happening as, as John has this revelation of God. Okay, the next one is connecting or linking words. Things like therefore, but, since, also, and so forth. Um, you're, you're, you're trying to see there's a continuation of thought, right? So authors are writing. They have a, they have a train of thought. And you're trying to figure out what that train is. Um, what thought is the author con- connecting or continuing? And there's a, there's a great saying that um, when you see a therefore, you 
you, you need to find out what it's there for, right? You probably maybe heard that. That can be helpful. Um, I did not put a, I don't think I put a verse, did I? Okay, since we're in Ephesians, look at 4.1. This is a big one. Ephesians 1 through 3 is, is kind of like Paul giving um, indicative statements about who Jesus is, about who God is, and about who we are. Okay, these big, big statements. And then 4 through 6, he switches. And that word, therefore, is kind of the hinge point from the first half of the book to the second half of the book where he starts giving, in light of who Jesus is, in light of who we are, this is how we should live. Therefore, live this way. In fact, he says, therefore, live a life worthy of the calling to which you have received. So sometimes that, these connecting words can really help you connect a command to something bigger, to a statement, right? Uh, here, turn to the next one, uh, purpose clause. Purpose clause. All right, turn to Titus 2, 11 through 14. Actually, uh, I'm going to read, sorry, I'm just going to read verse 14. Okay, Titus 2, 14 says this, and we're looking for a purpose clause. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse us for himself, a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Why? Here's, here's the question. Here's what a purpose clause helps you answer. Why did he give himself for us? There's three things. Hey guys, Drew here. Uh, we uh, encountered a little bit of technical difficulties at this point in Scott's message. And by technical difficulties, I mean we were recording this on my phone and my daughter called in the middle of the uh, lesson and that caused the recording to stop. So, uh, for those of you who are uh, dying to know the rest of this stuff and what was Scott about to say and what are the other things I need to be looking for, uh, we just decided to sit down and uh, give you kind of a brief summary of the rest of his lesson so that you can at least know kind of uh, where he was going and the rest of the things to be looking for as you observe a text. So, he said there actually that in Titus 2.14, there are three uh, purpose statements for why Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. The three things that we see there, because of this word to, sits in front of us. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's the first reason. Uh, the second is to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, to make us his own. And then last, these people are to be eager to do good works. So uh, gave himself so that we might be eager to do good works, so that we might be the kinds of people who live obedient lives. Uh, purpose clauses that you look for, uh, not only to the word we just saw in that text, but uh, phrases like so that, or so as to, or in order to, in order that, for this reason, even just the word for sometimes is a big one. And so those are huge to be able to catch and, and to be looking for as you're reading through texts. I like to look in Paul's prayers when he prays specific things for his listeners. And he says, I'm praying this in order that or so that you might say, for example, uh, live a life worthy of uh, Christ. 
And so I, I love looking for those to go, okay, what are, what are the things Paul thinks that we need in our lives? What are the things he thinks we should be praying for if we want to live lives worthy of Christ? And it's those purpose clauses that help me find statements like that. Uh, the sixth thing that Scott said you should be looking for when you're reading through a text are location or place words. Uh, when you're reading through a text, often where uh, an event is taking place is significant or where an event is about to take place or the movement of a person from one place to another sometimes can be important. Um, the example he gave there was Acts 1.8. This is at the beginning of that book and Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And in that text, we have these three different locations, uh, statements given, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And if you kind of were to look at this on a map, basically, you've got uh, concentric circles moving out with Jerusalem being the epicenter of the gospel proclamation, and then it moves out into the surrounding region and into the ends of the earth. And then actually, as you look at the book of Acts, this is this verse becomes an outline for the book of Acts. This is how it will unfold. Um, I believe it's, uh, without looking at it right now, I think it's Jerusalem is uh, one through seven, and then Judea and Samaria is, I think it's eight through 12. And then you have 13 through the end of the book, 28 is the ends of the earth. Uh, number seven, contrasts and comparisons. When we're reading through a text, we want to be looking for contrasts and comparisons. One of the uh, authors that utilizes this the most is John. Uh, so if you look at his epistles, uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and, and also in the gospel, you'll see uh, a lot of contrasting ideas come up a lot. This is... 1 John 2, verses 9 through 10. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother and sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So John is setting up one of his favorite motifs, which is light and darkness. He talks about there's, there's one person who lives in light, one person who lives in darkness. And then he uses these other two contrasts to describe that. The one in light is the one who loves his brothers and sisters in Christ. And the one in darkness is the one who hates his brothers and sisters in Christ. And the one who walks in light because he loves brothers and sisters, there is no cause for stumbling in him. He'll be able to see where he's going and, and things will go smoothly. But the one who hates his brother or sister and, and walks in darkness, uh, John says, does not know where he is going uh, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so John could just say, hey, love your brother and, and don't hate your brother. Uh, but when he sets up these contrasts and comparisons, he's trying to give us a picture of two ways of life that a person can live and trying to let you see like the, the, the beauty and goodness of one and the ugliness of the other. Uh, another example of this that Scott gave was uh, Proverbs eleven twenty two, A beautiful woman who rejects good sense is like a gold ring in a pig's snout. 
Uh, and, and you see there actually not so much the contrasting that you had in First John, but comparison, comparing a beautiful woman who is rejecting good sense, who holds on to foolishness, comparing that with a gold ring in a pig's snout. Um, the idea of being like something beautiful in something ugly, uh, something that doesn't click together. This actually leads us to the eighth thing that you ought to be looking for, which is figures of speech. That's what Proverbs eleven twenty two is. It's a figure of speech, a gold ring and a pig snout. Uh, and and he'll, you'll see these a lot throughout the Psalms and the Proverbs. You'll see them everywhere. But in like wisdom literature and in poetry, these become really big. So Proverbs 25, 28, a person who does not control his temper is like a city whose wall is broken down. And so you have that figure of speech. This is what a person with a hot temper is like, someone who's uh, a city whose wall is broken down. And of course, in that day and age, city walls were uh, meant to be security for you. That's what kept you from being uh, open to attack from the outside world, from the enemy forces. It was a sign of security. And so to have walls broken down meant that you were left explo- exposed to disaster. Now, listen, the writer of Proverbs could just say, um, a person who doesn't control his temper will probably cause bad things to happen in their life. And, and that would be one way to say it. But figures of speech are meant to evoke in us this, this kind of picture of what life can be like. And so when he says like a city whose wall is broken down, he's meant to evoke like um, this idea of being completely exposed to disaster at any given moment. That's what it's like when you cannot control your temper, that you leave you and the ones uh, you love and around you open to a disaster towards many bad things that could happen when you don't control your anger. And so when we look for figures of speech, we ask, okay, by this figure of speech, by this word picture, this metaphor, this simile, whatever you want to call it, whatever you're seeing, what, what is the writer trying to evoke in me? What picture is he trying to get me to see? And then what kind of emotions or whatever might he be trying to get me to feel? Last thing to be looking for in a text is uh, number nine, anything strange, unusual, or unexpected. Anything strange, unusual, or unexpected. This is uh, one of my favorites. I I love uh, finding things in the Bible that don't make sense upon first reading that seem a little bit odd or out of the ordinary because usually there's significance to that. There's, There's a reason the writer's doing something that you didn't expect there. Uh, one of the examples Scott gave was from Luke uh, 15, 1 through 7, which is the story of the shepherd who has a lost sheep. And then uh, Jesus says, which of you, if you lost a sheep, would not leave the 99 behind in the open field? Or or some uh, translations say, oh, in the wilderness, leave the 99 behind in the wilderness to go find that lost sheep. And this would have been, to the people Jesus is talking to, unexpected because the answer is no shepherd would leave 99 behind. You, you, if you're going to leave the 99, you at least leave them in an enclosed space and some sort of sheep pen, some, somewhere where they're somewhat protected. Uh, but the point Jesus is making is, is uh, he's trying to stress the great love that God has for the lost, uh, for the wayward. And, and how he seeks them out and runs after them. And so we don't read in this story, oh, well, God doesn't care about the P99 
people who already know him. No, that's that's not the point Jesus is trying to make. It's the emphasis on seeking the lost. And so in this story, he uses this unexpected idea of a shepherd loving the sheep so much that he just takes off running without even worrying about what to do with the rest in this moment because he's trying to stress the great love that God has for people. Uh, so there is my summary of Scott's teaching. I'm sorry you couldn't hear the whole thing. It would have been better, uh, but you'll have to just kind of be uh, satisfied with this for now. We hope these things are helpful for you, uh, that this has been good as you've been reading new, uh, or, or studying along with us, even if that is from a distance. And we will talk to you, or you'll hear from us, I guess, next week. See ya.